Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. The Lord is with you. Our relationships with one another in our homes and at work, with our coworkers, with our supervisors, with those we supervise, uh, relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children, and all of those relationships are governed by expectations that we carry around in our head. We expect people to do certain things, behave a certain way, respond a certain way, and they expect us in the same way, don't they? Now, that all works pretty well as long as we both parties know what the expectations are so that if we fail to meet them, we know we fail to meet them, and uh, we're never surprised by the other's disappointments. In the recovery movement, they have a, a proverb, a saying that says, unexpoken or unexpressed expectations are premeditated resentments. That is, when we have expectations of others and we don't make those explicit, but we carry them around with us and we're constantly judging them by how well they measure up to those things, and when they fail, we become resentful. So if we have expectations that are unexpressed or unthought through, we're just planning to become resentful. We're going to be disappointed. That's the way those relationships work. Now, it helps a lot uh, to get explicit about those things. When I talk about pastoral ministry to students at the seminary or to pastors and churches, I sometimes use the illustration of marriage. Uh, a couple comes into a marriage with two separate sets of expectations about what the word husband means and what that role is and what the word wife means and what that role is like. And they form those expectations by observing two different families. She had her father and her mother, and she saw how husbands and wives behaved there and others in her extended family. He came from a completely different family, and he observed completely different people. And his expectations of those roles have been shaped that way. The point is, they don't come to the marriage altar automatically understanding each other about those things. And I stand there as a pastor, and I give them titles. There's this powerful moment in the wedding ceremony when the pastor says, I declare that you are husband and wife. And presto, changeo, they are, right? Just uh, powerful words. I have given them each a title, husband and wife, and they both nod as if they understand what that means. But the fact is, unless they've thought deeply and talked about those expectations, each of them hears that pronouncement in an entirely different way. And it's only a matter of time, just a matter of time, before she, living out of her understandings of what wives are, what that word means, deeply disappoints him. And it's only a matter of time before he, living out of his set of expectations about what a husband is, leaves her wondering what a jerk she's married. It's just a matter of time. Unexamined and unexpressed expectations are the source of a good bit of pain in most marriages. 
And that same thing holds true in the relationship between a church and its pastor. Um, you are inviting Dr. Matt Homar and his family to come and join this community of faith called Trinity Baptist Church. What do you expect of him? I mean, be honest. What do you expect of him? What are your expectations about what pastors should and should not do? Uh, about what pastors should and, and should not, how they should and should not behave? What, are, what do you expect of your pastor? What their roles are, their functions are? The fact is, you do, every single one of you, has some expectations in your head, and each of you has formed those expectations in a variety of ways. You haven't come to that, most of you probably, there might be one or two, who have come to that set of expectations by studying Scripture and saying, this is what the Bible says, and so this is what I expect. We come to it in a very different way. And so you end up with a job description of the perfect pastor that sounds something like this. Maybe you've heard it. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sin, but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 p.m. till midnight and sets a good example as a husband and father. Uh, he makes uh, $200 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $100 a week to the church. He's 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. He has a burning desire to reach teenagers and spends most of his time with senior adults. He smiles all the time with a straight face because his sense of humor keeps him seriously dedicated to the church. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. He has time for the church council and all its committees. He never misses a meeting of the church organization and yet is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. So expectations sort of flow together in a pot like that. Nobody, Jesus would not meet the combined automatic expectations of any Baptist congregation. I can promise you that. Some of us had formed our expectations about what pastors do and shouldn't do and how they behave and how they work. We form those by the pastors that have pastored us along the way. We've observed, some of us, you've been around long enough to observe the ministry of many pastors, and maybe one or two of them sticks out in your mind is that's what a, a pastor really is, and that shapes the expectations. Some of you are sons and daughters of pastors. It may have been your father's ministry that has shaped your expectation deeply. Other you, others of you have not been part of the church that long. Maybe Les Holland may be the only pastor that you ever had in your life, and that forms that. Some of you have been around here for a long time, and Buckner Fanning still defines what the ideal pastor is in your mind. That's the way it works. And to tell you the truth, when Dr. Homeyer gets here, He's had some expectations formed along the way. His own set of expectations about what pastors do and don't do, how they behave and what is expected of them. And those have been formed by the pastors that he's had along the way and the pastors that have shaped him. His pastors, his, the teaching he's received in college and seminary, books he's read, his mentors, his own experience. The point is that churches and, churches and pastors come to these expectations just like newlyweds do. We both formed our expectations in a variety of ways, and we bring them together. And if they're not clearly expressed, identified, we just set ourselves up for resentment or disappointment along the way. So it's, it's a useful thing to stop and ask the question, what do I expect? What can I rightly, biblically expect of my pastor? Uh, and I tell you, the truth-wise pastors spend time thinking about that too. What is expected of me rightfully and biblically?
The problem is not having the expectations. It's getting clear about them so that both parties know what's going on. So it's a good place to turn to Scripture and to ask the question, what does Scripture say about what pastors are to do and be? What can we rightfully, biblically rely on there? You might find it interesting to know that the word pastor does not show up in the New Testament except one time in only one passage. But the word pastor in English, once upon a time, was the word in English for shepherd. And the same is true in the Greek language the New Testament was written in. The same word that means shepherd is the word that's translated pastor. A pastor is the shepherd of God's flock, or sometimes, as Peter says, the under-shepherd, with Christ being the great shepherd. Uh, so, Jesus never spoke about pastors in particular, but he did talk about himself as the good shepherd. And when he restored Peter after Peter's denial of him, restored him to ministry, he talked to him about taking care of his sheep, about the work of being a shepherd. The book of Acts tells the story of the development of the early church and never one time uses the word pastor to describe the church leaders there. They are called elders or they are called overseers, but never pastors. In Acts chapter 20, uh, the Apostle Paul is addressing a gathering of the, the elders at the church of Ephesus, the leaders of the church at Ephesus. And he says to the elders that they need to shepherd the flock over which God has made them overseers. He uses all three of those ideas together, but he uses it in a, a verbal sense. Shepherd the flock, pastor the flock, but he never calls them pastors along the way. By the way, the book of Acts never uses the word deacon either, but that's, those are two offices in our church, churches that we hold dear. In the rest of the New Testament, the only place the word pastor is used is Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13. It says this, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There's one other passage that uh, is important to mention. It's 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter, as Paul did in Acts chapter 20, is addressing the elders of his churches, the church leaders. And he instructs those elders to be good shepherds. He says, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So when we want to know what the New Testament says about pastors, we have to go beyond the word pastor itself and look at the instruction that is given to the congregational leaders in the New Testament. So then what are the legitimate biblical expectations you and I not only can but ought to bring to the table when we think about what we expect of our pastors? How do we get that right? I've got a list that I use for myself and 
I've used to teach students. And maybe my list will get your thinking going. I'd be interested to know what's on your list that's not on mine. But there, these are some things I think biblically we have a right to expect. We should be able to expect our pastors to be people with growing Christ-like character. We should expect our pastors to be spiritually growing toward Christ-likeness. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul outlines the qualifications for pastors, or he calls them their overseers, and for deacons. Those are the only two positions in the church for which there are character qualifications given, not teachers, evangelists, prophets, any of those things. The only two in the New Testament that have character qualifications are pastors and deacons. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer or a pastor desires a noble task. The overseer must be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. Those words are given there. There's so much that is not said in that paragraph. There's, there's nothing said much about their skills. He must be able to teach, but there's not a lot of statement about competencies and abilities and skills. And there are things in there that have been the subject of a lot of discussion about gender and other things. But I want you to hear the thrust of this passage is the pastor is expected to be a person of Christ-like character that can be respected and who bears some spiritual and emotional maturity. That's expected of our pastors. We should feel free to expect that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, he said, we should be, the pastor should be an example to the flock. And so there's that. Feel free to expect that of any pastor that comes your way. And don't put up with anything less than that. They're not perfect. But you should be able to see that the movement is toward maturity and Christ-likeness. That's the goal of their life. We should be able to expect our pastors to be people who love Jesus and who express that love for him by loving the congregation. When Peter was being restored to ministry in John chapter 21, Jesus said to him, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And three times Jesus said, feed my sheep, care for my sheep, tend my sheep. If you love me, express that in the ministry you have for my people whom I love. You should be able to expect your pastor to love the church. I, there's a word that has been useful to me. Um, I probably borrow this from Wendell Berry, but it is the word affection. And Paul uses that in Philippians chapter 1 when he speaks about the affection that he has for the people in Philippi. That ought to govern a relationship between pastor and people. You ought to have the sense that your pastor loves you. And on any given day, not all of us are that lovable, are we? But affection is something that transcends that. And not all pastors are lovable every day, I'll tell you that. 
but affection is something that ought to be a part of the relationship. One of Wendell Berry's novels is called A Place on Earth. It's set in 1945. There's this this old farmer and his wife, Matt and Margaret Felton, live in the little town of Port Royal. Uh, and they um, have a son named Virgil who's been off at war. And words come back that Virgil is missing in action. And over time, it's presumed that Virgil has died. And so the pastor in the town, Brother Preston, comes to make a visit to the family's house. And it is the most awkward thing you've ever read. When you read the scene of Brother Preston visiting with Matt and with uh, Margaret and with their daughter who's married to Vir daughter-in-law who's married to Virgil. Those, the three grieving people, the three hurting people end up doing more ministry to the pastor than the pastor does to him. And he finally leaves that pastoral visit and goes, sits in the church house, and he knows it's been a dismal failure. Two days after that impotent call on the Feltners, Burley Coulter, who's another character in the town, writes a letter to his nephew, Nathan, who's off at war, and tells him about Brother Preston's visit, but he calls him Brother Piston. A uh, little bit of evidence, he's not all that respectful of the pastor there. He had received one of those calls himself a few years earlier uh, when uh, Nathan's brother Tom had died in the war, and he knew how futile that visit was. There was no affection between pastor and people. And Burley, in his letter to Nathan, wrote this. He said, while he was having his say, the pastor, I sat there and thought my thoughts. Here, in a way, he had come to have the last words over Tom. And what claim did he have to do it? He'd never done a day's work with us in his life, nor could he have. He never, st he, he never did stand up with, in his ache and sweat and go down the row with us. He never tasted any of our sweat in the water jug. And I was thinking, preacher, who are you to speak of Tom to me who knew him and knew the very smell of him? The disconnect between the pastor and the congregation he was supposed to be serving is really evident through that story. And it ought not to be. Affection is something that develops between pastors and congregations over time as you share life together, as you share the communion table together, as you share conversations about ordinary life together, as you sit together during difficult times in life. And over time, what grows is genuine affection between pastor and congregation. And you ought to expect that to be so. It shouldn't come as a surprise and it shouldn't be accepted as something missing. It's a kind of ethical failure when a pastor fails to love the people God has called the pastor to serve. We should be able to expect our pastors to be committed to equipping us for the work of ministry and encouraging us to find our place of service in the kingdom of God. The only place in the New Testament where the word pastor occurs is Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, and that's where the subject matter is, the equipping of God's people for the work of service. That's the task of a pastor. You should be get used to hearing the pastor encourage you to find places to serve in the world, to take your gifts and abilities and invest them in places, to use whatever opportunities and resources God has given you to serve the kingdom of God. The pastor is not present to be uh, our hired hand who does the spiritual stuff on our behalf. The pastor is there to equip us, the people of God, to do the work of ministry in the world. The fourth thing is we should be able to expect our pastors to be servant leaders. Uh, leadership is an important part of pastoring. 
pastors, shepherds, lead the flock. We talked about that some last week. But Jesus defined leadership for us in a very clear way. One day, James and John, two of the apostles, came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we want to ask you for something. Say yes. And Jesus not going to be taken in by that. He says, maybe we need to talk about that. What is it you want? Well, when you get into your kingdom, and they imagined this royal kingdom with all this power and glory. When you come into your kingdom, we want the privilege of sitting at your right hand and your left hand. We want to be your number one, number two guys right there beside you. We want to share the power with you. And Jesus said, you don't have any idea what you're asking. You just don't understand. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? The cup he was talking about, of course, was the cup he would struggle with in Gethsemane, the cup of his suffering and the cross. The baptism he was talking about was not his water baptism. It was his immersion in doing the will of God, his immersion being over his head and saying yes to the Father's will and doing that even though it demanded suffering. Can you drink the cup and be baptized with that baptism? And they said, oh, yes, we can do that. And Jesus said, well, eventually you're going to drink that cup and eventually you're going to receive that baptism. But I have to tell you, it's not mine to give those places of prominence. Now, interestingly, in the Gospel of Mark, the only other place where one on the right and one on the left, where that phrase occurs. It says, they took him to a place called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two thieves, one on the right and one on the left. Uh, I wondered sometimes if Jesus had granted their request where they might have ended up on that day. But here it is. He says, well, you don't understand. And about that time, the other 10 apostles caught wind of this discussion going on about James and John trying to horn in on them and get these places of responsibility and position. And they were indignant with James and John, it says. And so Jesus gathers the whole group together. And he said, you all need to understand something. The Gentiles, the unbelievers, the pagans who get into places of leadership. It's all about power for them. It's all about power for them. And they lord it over those below them. It's constant. It happens in politics. It happens in business. It happens in religion. It happens everywhere there are people. The pagans lord it over those they are in charge of. But then Jesus said this really clearly. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. He that would be great among you must be servant of all. He that was, would be first must become last. You need to understand that's the way it works. For, he said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. And that's what we ought to be able to expect our pastors to be. Not Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God, not lording it over them, but being an example to the flock. We should be able to expect that. Fifth thing I wrote down is that we should expect our, our pastors to work hard. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, which we'll look at next week, uh, Paul says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. We should expect that. I know a lot of pastors. I know very few 
pastors I would describe as lazy pastors. I'm sure there are some out there. But the pastors that I know work pretty hard. They take their calling seriously. They take their people in there seriously. They take the mission of God in their church seriously. And they work hard. And we should expect that to be so. It's not a clock-punching kind of occupation that says, well, I've done my 40 hours and so the week is over. It's being available to God's call and opportunities, and sometimes that's quite demanding on time. Now, I wouldn't want to expect my pastor to be a workaholic. I just want him to work hard. He should do what he's called to do, and we can expect that. The sixth thing is that we should be able to expect our pastors to preach and teach God's word with competence. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a work worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Uh, I don't think pastors uh, need to hit a home run every time they step into the pulpit, but we should expect them to get on base, e even if it just means getting hit by a text. Anything we should expect to come and to hear someone who is prepared to tell us what they have heard from Scripture and what they believe God wants us to hear. And we should expect that. Bill Wilson was the executive director for a long time of the Center of Congregational Health, and he wrote an editorial in Associated Baptist Press a few years ago. It was a very powerful story. Uh, he told about, as a young pastor, uh, that how he learned not to take for granted those sitting in the pews on Sunday morning. Uh, he said, we might be tempted to think that people are going to show up on Sunday, no matter what we do, and so we can take it for granted. But he said, the wise preacher will not take lightly the truth that every person seated in the sanctuary has made some degree of effort and sacrifice to be present. The stewardship of that gift of time and attention is a primary component of effectiveness as a minister. And he said he learned that one day when, as a young pastor, new to a congregation, he noticed an elderly man come in for the first several weeks that he was pastor there behind a walker, barely able to take a few inches of steps each time until he seated himself in the same pew and his daughter uh, sat down beside him. And so Bill said he went over to speak to the daughter one day as her father was getting settled into the pew. And he said, I really appreciate the way your father is so faithful to be here every week. And she sort of teared up and she said, you have no idea what it takes for him to get here. He gets up at six in the morning because it takes him nearly four hours just to get ready to go to church. And I pick him up at 10 and the service doesn't start till 11 and we try to get here by 10.30 because it takes so much effort to get from the parking lot into the sanctuary. I appreciate so much that you noticed. And Bill said he swore from that point on to always notice and to always understand that people who are here have come here with needs, have come here with questions, have come here with struggles, have come here through struggle at times just to be present. And we have a right to expect our pastors to come to this hour prepared to speak to us from Scripture and God's Word. That's an expectation that's not unreasonable. In fact, it's a good, solid, biblical expectation. I have one more thing, and that is that we should expect our pastors to help us remain focused on following Jesus and engaging the mission of God. The primary task is to call us back to attention before the mission of God and the Word of God. Our attention spans are so short. 
and we leave here on Sunday morning, and now we've got six days to spend out in a world that is telling us something just the opposite of what we heard for 25 minutes on Sunday morning. Every commercial that goes before us, every news report, every drama, every sitcom, every movie, everything that fills our heads from the world around us is basically contradicting everything we thought about for a few minutes on Sunday. And, and part of what preaching and teaching is on Sunday is to say, pay attention, focus, stay focused on who it is we are and what we've been called to be and what we've been called to do. We should expect that of our pastors, that they keep calling us back to who we are and what we're called to do. Eugene Peterson, who was the pastor's pastor, he translated or provided the paraphrase called The Message, but he wrote books for pastors. And he has a lengthy passage here. Um, I'd like to read the whole thing to you. I'm not going to do that. But I do want to read a paragraph, and it's pretty lengthy. So if you would just stay, stay attentive here for a minute. But he's talking about what it is churches expect of pastors, especially when we ordain them. But here he says, one more thing. We ordain you to this ministry, and we want your vow that you will stick to it. This is not a temporary job assignment, but a way of life that we need lived out in our community. We know that you are launched on the same difficult belief venture in the same dangerous world as we are. We know your emotions are as fickle as ours in our mind, and your mind is as tricky as ours. That's why we're going to ordain you, and we're going to exact a vow from you. We know there will be days and months and weeks, maybe even years, when we won't feel like believing anything, and we won't want to hear it from you. And we know there will be days and weeks and maybe even years when you won't feel like saying it. It doesn't matter. Do it. You are ordained to this ministry, vowed to it. There may be times when we come to you as a committee or delegation and demand that you tell us something else other than what we're telling you now. Promise right now you won't give in to what we demand of you. You're not the minister of our changing desires or our time-conditioned understanding of our needs or our secularized hopes for something better. With these vows of ordination, we are lashing you fast to the mast of word and sacrament so you will be unable to respond to the siring voices. There are many other things to be done in this wrecked world, and we're going to be doing at least some of them. But if we don't know the foundational realities with which we are dealing, God, kingdom, gospel, we're going to end up living lives of fantasy. Your task is to keep telling us the basic story representing the presence of the Spirit, insisting on the priority of God, speaking the biblical words of command and promise and invitation. That, he says, or something very much like it, is what I understand the church to say, even when people can't articulate it, to the individuals it ordains to be its pastors. We should be able to expect that he comes week after week to call us back to who we are and what our mission is and who our God is, and what the truth is, and what the kingdom is. Because we need, having hit the bumpy road of the world all week long, we need to be realigned with, with what is right and what is true. Now, maybe your list is longer than those seven things I listed. Maybe it's shorter. Maybe you've got things I don't have on them. I'd be glad to hear about those because I'd like to have a good, solid list. But the fact is we have expectations. They need to be biblical and grounded, and they need to be high and strong. And we bring those to the table.
We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.